morning. Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. It's the season of lights on Christmas trees and menorahs, in windows and on front porches, lights piercing the darkness, a shining symbol of hope for a bright future. Nearly a century ago, one small light went on in the nation's heartland, a light that became a beacon of hope for youngsters who'd lost their way. Tony DeCopel will report our cover story. The world's most famous reform school, Boys Town. Yes, that Boys Town. I want a home for them where they can stay. Is still running strong after nearly 100 years. More felons per capita here than any town in Nebraska. Probably. <laughs> but we're all doing our best to change. How a last chance Very proud of you, can become a new beginning ahead on Sunday morning. Adam Driver hasn't always been a Hollywood heavy. Once upon a time, he was just another Indiana kid who dreamt big. Tracy Smith hears all about it in our Sunday profile. You still want to kill me. Long before he was the terror of the Star Wars universe, actor Adam Driver was just an ordinary guy, a slacker kid growing up in Mishawaka, Indiana. And you actually had to sell vacuums. I can't... Sell vacuums? Yeah, I wasn't good at that either. Had a long string of like, you know, 18 years of doing things badly. Oh, how things have changed. Adam Driver, later on Sunday morning. We hear a lot about joy to the world this time of year. This morning, our Seth Doan introduces us to a man for whom joy is just part of the job. He was handpicked for the job at age two. And after a lifetime of delivering a message of hope and compassion, he's an authority on a welcome topic this Christmas day. Joy, you know something about. Joy, yes. Oh, happy. Not only just on the physical level, but mentally. Peace. Compassion. A visit with the Dalai Lama ahead this Sunday morning. Christmas ornaments come in all shapes and sizes. Did you know menorahs do too? With Serena Altschul this morning, we'll let there be lights. Tis the season for Hanukkah, but no celebration would be complete without a menorah or two or ten. This is a shoe menorah, generally less expensive than the shoes that my wife and my daughter buy. <laughs> Later on Sunday morning, let there be lights. I love it. <laughs> I'm rocking and rolling, baby. 2016. Happy 2016. Is it poinsettia or poinsettia? Mark Strassman will answer that question. Ben Tracy tells us about the best-selling Christmas song of our time. Barry Peterson visits an old water tank that's found new life as a, believe it or not, recording studio and more. Looks like everybody had a pretty good school day today. Just ahead. Chase, where would you be without Boys Town? I'd be in lockup. A visit to Boys Town. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. 
there's no place like home. Rarely does that ring truer than this time of year. Our Christmas cover story is all about a very special home for some very needy kids. It's reported by Tony DeCopel. Right near the midpoint of America, 10 miles outside of Omaha, Nebraska, there's a town that sits between childhood and whatever comes after. These young people are about to become citizens of the most famous village in the world. In this town, almost every kid is at a crossroads. Raise your right hand. I do solemnly promise. I do solemnly promise. That I will be a good citizen. That I will be a good citizen. And the goal of all the grown-ups here is to help the kids leave the town behind. Good, let's hear it for our new citizens. This is Boys Town. Eighteen-year-old Chase Cruz from Dodge, Nebraska, was sworn in here six months ago, arriving, like a lot of the kids, straight from jail. I took the school safe. For beer money. Just for money. For beer money, and gas money, and buy cigarettes. Two more break-ins so, followed, I can, I can and Chase ended up arrested in front of his bewildered parents. My mom was crying. My dad was crying. He had run through four different schools, stolen and lied, and he faced 80 years in prison. Absolutely, it is a long boat. Until a judge helped him get into Boys Town. Nice job, guys. Keep it up. I had that mindset of I'd never want to ever put myself in the position where I could land myself back in an orange jumpsuit. I never wanted my jail ID number to say who I was. Okay, so check your paper. On your worksheet, you should have... 17-year-old Andre Harris came to Boys Town much the same way. Nearly three years ago, back in Amarillo, Texas, he stole a car and ended up in juvenile detention. I didn't feel like I was going to amount to anything after that. Frankly, he didn't think he'd amount to much before jail either. Andre, what do you think an upside is? C. C. College seemed out of reach. He can't remember hearing someone say they were proud of him. So you're absolutely right. Um, beautiful. More felons per capita here than any town in Nebraska. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but we're all doing our best to change. Almost every week here at Boys Town, new boys, and since 1979, new girls too, are sent by social workers, judges, and desperate parents. Most of the kids have been unable to live anywhere else without getting in trouble. And Boys Town is their last chance. A lot of people would say they're bad kids. Is that how they see themselves when they get here? Some of our kids do. They see themselves as, you know, on the bottom of the totem pole. How do you change that mindset? You show them that this is your decision. This is your life. <laughs> Tony Jones is what's called a family teacher. Okay, David, um, who's making tea? He and his wife, Simone, run one of 55 homes on campus. You're going to break the cheddar cheese. Eight Boys okay. Town children live here like a family, alongside the Joneses' three biological kids. Every single 
young man that has come through my home has now become a part of my family. The Heavenly Father, thank you for this food which we're about to receive. This is a large part of what makes Boys Town so powerful. Looks like everybody had a pretty good school day today. All 360 kids living here have paid Boys Town parents like Tony and Simone. It's a professional, full-time dad, brother, uncle, cousin, whatever my boys may need me to be at that particular time in their life, that's then who I become for them. Good day, son. Good day. Good day. Jones actually began at Boys Town as a boy himself. He was born to a shattered family in Detroit. I can recall my brother and I standing at a bus stop, and it was in the, the dead of winter, and we only had one pair of socks to share between the two of us. But then a priest gave the Jones brothers a chance to change their lives at Boys Town. It was a total transformation. Where do you think you personally, Tony Jones, would be if you had said no to Boys Town? Oh, two places. I would be either incarcerated or I would be dead. The saddest spectacle in our social life is the neglected, unwanted, and unloved boy. The Jones story is typical of a hundred years of stories at Boys Town. It began in 1917 as Father Flanagan's home for boys. His bruised and tortured heart and mind must be nursed back to normal health through kindness. The most beloved clergyman in America, he created arguably the most famous reform school in the world. You may remember a 1938 Oscar-winning movie about the place, starring Spencer Tracy. I want a home for them where they can stay and where they can learn. But what you probably don't know is it's a real town with a real post office and police department. At about $65,000 per student per year, Boys Town is comparable to a top private college, and it's mostly taxpayers footing the bill. But taxpayers pay for prisons, too, more than $39 billion a year nationally. Okay, good. Yeah, so that'd be your right. Boys Town says it can keep some of those prison cells empty, while nearly doubling the chance that these students will graduate from high school. How do you avoid coming in and being somebody, just another person, telling them all the things they're doing wrong? By telling them all the things that they're doing right. That's how you help kids change. You know, it's being able to say, hey, young man, you did a good job this morning getting up. It almost sounds like a joke. Well, you know something? That little praise goes a long way. That little praise goes all the way back to Father Flanagan's founding idea. There are no bad boys. Chase, where would you be without Boys Town? I'd be in lockup. And if all that sounds too pat to be successful, just listen to the results. Probably should lock up. I've, I've been here for a short amount of time, but since my first day, I didn't feel like I was in a place where I couldn't leave. I felt like I was home. Of course, the Boys Town way does not work for every child who comes here. There are failures. It's nice to see you. Hey, Dad. Good, good. But for Chase's parents, Dan and Trish, it's been nothing short of a Christmas miracle. Who was Chase before Boys Town, and who is he today? He was dishonest, disrespectful, a thief, and now he is 
the Chase that I always wanted him to be. Yeah, very proud of you, Chase. And we love you very much. I love you too. How is the kid sitting here right now with me different from the kid who was driving that car? He's not even the same person. For Andre Harris, the change has been no less dramatic since stealing that car. And how are you different? My actions, the way I speak, I've grown up. I've become a young man. He's a school leader now, a star on the track team, and he just found out he's headed to college next year. But first, he's headed back to Amarillo for the holidays, a place he hasn't seen for nearly three years. Yeah. It's a place that Boys Town has been preparing him for since the very day he made his grand theft exit. This is my Christmas gift, so I mean, this is all I wanted. Oh, there's my baby. <laughs> it's home. <laughs> We've missed you. I'm oh, so yeah. proud of you, sweetheart. Thank you. Very Thank proud you. of you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Coming up. Are they in every room? They're in every room. <laughs> and every room's different color. Poinsettias. Or do you say poinsettias? Time for a story about a plant whose pesky pronunciation has a lot of us seeing red this time of year. Mark Strassman sets the record straight. In Greenville, South Carolina, this 1905 craftsman-style home is a canvas of Christmas color. Are they in every room? They're in every room. <laughs> and every room's different color. Travis Seward <laughs> and Wade Cleveland have a passion for poinsettias. Seward, with his eye for color, chose five different varieties. I try to keep the rooms Remember, the same color. This is color. all room. This yep, is, so this is all, all red right. throughout this uh, hallway. They are Christmas. They speak Christmas. And if you have lots of them, they scream Christmas, I guess. Greenville has poinsettia pride. At the airport, new arrivals see it in this massive tree. More than 10 feet tall, built with 168 plants. You can't live in Greenville and be a part of the community and not understand that the poinsettia has a special place. They have the poinsettia parade for the Christmas parade. And so. And a poinsettia hotel and a poinsettia bridge, which is very historic, and a poinsettia highway. So it's hard to miss that there is a connection. It's hard to miss in this house. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's less obvious is the history of these plants, which grow wild in Mexico. In the 1500s, the Aztecs were the first to cultivate them. Franciscan missionaries arrived in the 1600s and thought the plant's red color symbolized the blood of Christ. They called it La Flor de la Noche Buena, or Christmas Eve flower. In Tasco, Mexico, this nativity parade earlier this month showcased the poinsettia's enduring power. Street mosaics in the city pay tribute to the plant. It is the Christmas plant. Jim Faust, a horticulture professor at Clemson University, is an authority on the plants. Poinsettia or poinsettia? Yeah, most academics and horticulturists will say poinsettia. Uh, Joel Poinsett himself said poinsettia. Poinsett, a 19th century politician, lived in Greenville. Joel Poinsett, who the plant is named after, uh, was the first ambassador of the uh, United States to Mexico 
and he was an avid plants person, and so he was involved in the exchange of plants to and from uh, Mexico and the United States, and, and so he happened to, in 1828, uh, send the first poinsettias to this country. Americans became enamored of this plant that blooms only once around Christmas. It's really in the early 1900s when poinsettias become unpopular that you start to see stamps and Christmas cards and stuff that really start to have much more of the red and green as the dominant colors. So the red and green we associate with Christmas coincided with the popularity of poinsettias. Yeah, absolutely. By the 1960s and 70s, U.S. greenhouses produced millions of them. Poinsettias decorated the sets of Christmas specials on television. And The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Well, well, well. Look at all the poinsettias. Today, they're America's second most popular potted plant behind orchids. There are more than 150 varieties. We have varieties like Titan and Marble Star, Ice Punch, Freedom. Shades of red make up 90% of the $200 million market. Contrary to widespread belief, poinsettias are not poisonous to people or pets. If you taste the nectar on them, it tastes really good. It's, it's really sweet. That is sweet. <laughs> it's no. like honey. It is like honey. Yeah. Who knew? Consumers typically buy one or two. Travis Seward has bought more than 80. How do you know when to stop? He doesn't ever know when to stop. We got a cupcake menorah. Next. We now have 154 menorahs in our collection. Let there be lights. It's Hanukkah, the Jewish festival of lights. Serena Altschul fills us in on the mysteries of the menorah. Hanukkah, the Jewish festival of lights. A time for family and dedication, a tradition that wouldn't be complete without lighting at least one menorah. Or in the case of David Moore and his daughter Jamie. We lose track every once in a while, but uh, we now have 154 menorahs in our collection. Properly called Hanukkah lamps, their collection is about as varied as they come. So Hanukkah's not, not complete without a pink Cadillac. <laughs> From Pokemon, to this one comprised of shoes, to one in the shape of a metal house. So you open it and put the candles in and then close the door and you get the flickering lights. Moore started collecting them to add a little spark to the holiday season. Christmas season is great. I love the Christmas season, but we're Jewish. And so uh, when you have little <laughs> kids, um, you know, you want to uh, make the celebration fun and interesting. So every year, father and daughter go in search of the next great addition. Just have a good time laughing, making jokes, and picking out menorahs that we want to add to the collection. We got a cupcake menorah. The Moore's collection, while impressive, is minuscule compared to the one at the Jewish Museum in New York City. At last count, they have more than a thousand, the largest in the world. 
This is the oldest lamp in the collection, so it's very exciting. It was made during the Renaissance. Susan Bronstein is the curator. She says the legend of the Hanukkah lamp dates back more than 2,000 years, to the time the Jews took back their holy temple in Jerusalem from the Greeks. When they went to sanctify the temple and they made a new menorah, they only found enough sanctified oil to burn for one day. And yet, miraculously, it lasted eight. So each night, you light the new candle. That's right. A Hanukkah lamp holds eight candles plus a servant candle called a shamish, used to light the others. The servant candle must also be on a different level. After that, pretty much anything goes. How is this a Hanukkah lamp? <laughs> well, um, if you look at all of the elements on the top, there are holes for candle holders, different uh, in the blocks, in the cylinders. So what you have here is this wonderful, joyous explosion of color and shapes. Bronstein says diversity was the museum's goal. Our collection is really an immigrant collection. It's pieces that came with the immigrants who, um, who arrived on our shores. Something Oded Halami knows firsthand. In 1973, I made my first Hanukkah lamp in New York City. Halami, an Iraqi Jewish artist, is known for his abstract art and Hanukkah lamp sculptures. People must be drawn to this, the color, the gold, painting. His family was part of a mass exodus from Baghdad to Israel during the early 1950s. His father, who was a goldsmith, left behind some of their most prized possessions. This was really painful for my family. My father had to sell the collection of Hanukkah lamp that brought from Iraq. Halami treasures the memory of his father and now makes at least one new Hanukkah lamp every year. I made this one wow. that inspired, but hey, wow. Hey, wow. Each one features his signature pomegranate signifying love which is only fitting for the holiday. All we need is love. Whether you make them, collect them, or just like to observe the holiday, the Hanukkah lamp is an enduring symbol of light and hope. It's my love. Love, freedom, light. I love it. Still to come, a walk with Adam Driver. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. That lightsaber, it belongs to me. Come get it. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. You may know him as Kylo Ren, but in real life, his name is Adam Driver, and his career is moving into the fast lane. Tracy Smith has our Sunday profile. You still want to kill me? Adam Driver was the brain-probing bad guy in last year's Star Wars mega-hit, The Force Awakens. He was intense and malevolent. But his Kylo Ren was also kind of, well, 
vulnerable. You're afraid. And he goes. We met the real Adam Driver on his home turf in Brooklyn. Good boy, all right, all right. Hey. Drop it. With his rescued terrier, Moose. Why'd you decide to get a dog? I love dogs. Clearly, Driver is no Star Wars villain, but he might be just as complex. Could you slow down a little bit, please? Before he ever picked up a lightsaber, Adam Driver was best known as really Lena Dunham's boyfriend in the hit HBO the series, Girls. Well, I want to walk. So please stop the bike, Adam. <laughs> the role seems tailor-made. He plays an actor named Adam who lives in Brooklyn. What's the issue? You're not being that nice to me, so I don't really understand why you'd even want to have me around. Well, when you love someone, you don't have to be nice all the time. But his latest film is a bit more of a stretch. In Patterson, Adam is a bus driver who really wants to be a poet. Working on a poem for you. A love poem? Yeah, I guess if it's for you, it's a love poem. It's not it's your typical Hollywood movie, and it isn't meant to be. I knock off work, have a beer at the bar. I look down at the glass and feel glad. Were you worried about doing a movie about poetry? I mean, it's kind of a joke that I guess we played, that we talked about on set, that, you know, dozens of people are going to watch this movie, so we really got to make it good. It's about, a, like, a bus-driving poet that's going to be really action-packed. People will be lining up to see this. So far, at least, critics have been lining up to praise it. The film does have a few surprise turns, and that's pretty much the story of Adam Driver's life. Raised in a middle-class home in Mishawaka, Indiana, he was a slacker student who liked drama and not much else. I auditioned for Juilliard when I was a senior in high school. I didn't get in, so I'm like, okay, then I just won't go to college. I didn't apply to anywhere else. That, that was, was it. That was my genius plan. And if I, if I didn't get into that school, which I heard was like a good school to go to for, uh, for acting, then I just thought that I won't do it, you know. After Juilliard turned him down, he lived at home, sold vacuum cleaners, and pondered his future. It all came to him in a flash in 2001, on September 11th. What was going through your head? I feel like probably most people in the country did at the time, just shock and horror and anger. And wanted like, you know, retribution and to do something. I'm at the age where I can, you know, why uh, nothing is holding me back here. Was that actually the cognition that, hey, I can, I can help out here? Yeah, as part of it. And joining the military seemed like a good idea. So Adam Driver enlisted two seats, two in the Marines. Was there a moment where you thought, what did I do? Yeah, these huge dudes are also with shaved heads are yelling at you, these grown men, you know, and, and you're, you're just, uh, you're alone, uh, uh, I guess, essentially. But after a few weeks, he learned to love it. Driver became a rifleman, highly trained in ground combat and small arms. But just before he was about to ship out for Iraq, he broke his sternum in a biking accident and was medically discharged from the Corps. Heartbroken and unemployed, he reapplied to Juilliard. This time he got in and had to learn to be a civilian all over again. Not that I was spitting on the ground or dragging my knuckles, but like a, you're just used to being very direct. So you had to tone yourself down. I had a to tone bit it down for yeah. the sensitive actors. 
Well, maybe, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, which is all probably hiding some kind of like uh, uh, insecurity in myself, you know. Uh, is Adam crying in the corner again? I, I mean, I didn't cry. Crying is for uh, weak people. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Actually, Driver found that theater helped him cope and figured it could also help his former brothers and sisters in arms. So he co-founded Arts in the Armed Forces, a group that puts on bare-bones theater productions for servicemen and women. You know, we talked a little bit about this before, about this idea that you have in, like, the survivor's guilt kind of thing that you didn't go overseas with the other guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there was initially maybe a, a high level of guilt that I didn't get to complete my service. I didn't get to go overseas and do the job I trained to do with the guys that I trained to do it with. I mean, what better audience than the people that are protecting our country, acting as a service industry? Why not service the ultimate service industry, which is being in the military? Shall I transmit, sir? Once out of school, his acting career took off with parts in ever bigger productions, like Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. Are we fitted to the times we're born into? Well, I don't know about myself. You may be. And not long after, he was cast in the mother of all franchise films. Will you help me? Yes, anything. So when you found out you were going to be the bad guy, yeah, what'd you think? It's way better. Yeah. Way better. Costumes are better. Lightsabers are better. But there's one person who can disarm Adam Driver: his nonprofit co-founder Joanne Tucker, whom he married in 2013. They've booked military gigs well into the new year. In the meantime, you can see him in another role he really hungered for. You must pray for courage, Mokichi. In the new Martin Scorsese film, Silence, Driver is a Jesuit priest who, with Andrew Garfield, is on a dangerous mission to find a lost colleague in 17th century Japan. What are you saying? You can't. You lost a lot of weight. Yeah, 51 pounds. 51 pounds? Yeah. I didn't realize it was that much. Oh, yeah. And that was uh, important to just, to me, to get down as much as we could in the time we had uh, to hopefully tell that story. And then after you told that story, did you go a get... Ate a lot of food, yeah. A lot of food? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what is it about Brooklyn? Uh, it's very quiet. Uh, here by comparison to the city. I think it's now that he's not a starving actor anymore, life is good. He'll return to the dark side in Star Wars Episode Eight next year. And after that, like every good Marine, Adam Driver knows to be ready for anything. Were you worried when you found out that you'd be the guy who would kill Han Solo? Yeah, yeah, that took a lot of uh, had to think about it for a while. I, I also have an allergy to like big blockbuster Hollywood movies. I feel an like. allergy to it. Yeah. There is no guidebook to how you can, you're supposed to be in your career, the projects that you're supposed to pick. It's just follow the things that are personal and interesting to you, and that's, that's uh, apart from that, everything will fall into place. It happened this past week. News of the passing of three originals. Zsa Zsa Gabor was famous for being famous long before we knew what that meant. She began her career in Vienna, crowned Miss Hungary in 1936. Soon afterward, she emigrated to the United States and became a sought-after actress. 
But while she may have been famous for her movies, Gabor was infamous for her marriages, nine in all. Gabor once said, I'm an excellent housekeeper. Every time I get divorced, I keep the house. Zsa Zsa Gabor was 99. China Machado was also one of a kind. Of Chinese and Portuguese descent, Machado became a hostess for Pan American Airways. Not long afterward, she met Luis Miguel Dominguin, a celebrity bullfighter. Their relationship came to an abrupt end when he met actress Ava Gardner at a party in Madrid. But Machado moved on to the world of high fashion. And even though she once said of herself, I never thought I was good looking in any way, shape, or form, photographers like the great Richard Avedon disagreed. She would become one of the very first non-white models to appear in Harper's Bazaar. Later on, she produced fashion TV shows and designed costumes for films and continued to model well into her 80s. China Machado was 86. Cindy Stoll, she's our champion, ladies and gentlemen. Cindy Stoll was a contestant like no other on Jeopardy. What is Xerox? That's it. What is the septum? Good. What is the Forbidden City? You are on the board with $1,400. A native of Austin, it was always her dream to appear on the quiz show. But after finally making the grade, Stoll had to reach out to show producers to ask if her appearance could be moved up because she didn't have long to live. Her shows taped in late summer, and not only did Stoll compete, she won six consecutive bouts. But when her last appearance aired Wednesday night, Cindy Stoll wasn't watching. She succumbed to her cancer earlier this month. On Wednesday, host Alex Trebek paid tribute to her. So from all of us here at Jeopardy, our sincere condolences to her family and her friends. At 41, Cindy Stoll had not only gotten her dying wish, but her more than $100,000 in winnings have been pledged to cancer research. Talk about a real champion. Ahead. She's singing our song. More than 20 years after its debut, there's still magic and money in a Christmas classic from Mariah Carey. So name that tune. Ben Tracy can help. After all, tis the season. He can play just about any Christmas song. But if Walter Afanasyev had to pick just one, well, all he wants for Christmas is this. For 22 years, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You has been the Christmas gift that keeps on giving. This year, it once again sits atop Billboard's Holiday 100. Did you ever imagine that 22 years later, we'd be sitting here talking about this song still? 
I literally every year um, am very, very surprised. I'm very fortunate. I mean, I pinch myself every year. That's because Afanasyev co-wrote the song with Carrie. It appeared on her Christmas album, released back in 1994. How long did it take to get this song done? Yeah, I'm going to say like 15, 20 minutes. We're improvising. So very quickly I go, okay, that's a really cool melody. Which is a, basically what I was playing in my bass hand, you know. How about that? She goes, oh, I like that. It's different. And then I go. She likes that chord. Carrie then wrote the lyrics, and the rest is nothing short of a Christmas miracle. The song has sold more than 14 million copies. It is the most downloaded song of Mariah Carey's career and has generated a reported $50 million in royalties. Let's pretend that we're all conducting an orchestra. And it was not expensive to make. <laughs> a little snare drum. Afanasyev used his computer to create all of the music. Here's my bass. Nobody's ever heard this. Hearing Mariah Carey's isolated vocal track is a reminder that she is one of the best singers of all time. Carey and Afanasyev were longtime collaborators. He worked on some of her biggest songs, including Hero. But only one of his songs climbs the charts every single year. Why do you think this has lasted so long? Because it didn't fall into any genre except for a very, very tried and true rock and roll genre. That no matter what year it is, it's always that sentimental yesteryear feeling. It's timeless. It's that that's what it is. That may be because Mariah Carey has spent a lot of time making sure nobody forgets she's the queen of Christmas. The queen, the literal throne-sitting monarch of the last 22 years is this live and kicking, cool-ass Mariah Carey that's still performing and gets to walk around saying, yep. That's my song. That's my song. Coming up, sounds of the season. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Now hear this. Barry Peterson has a singular story about a one-of-a-kind destination that has to be heard to be believed. The Christmas music is age old. Sung by the people of the small Colorado town of Rangeley. But it has never been heard this way before. It is music 
made inside a massive old water tank, like thousands that dot the American West. But there is only one like this. All right, and then if I swam it. It has acoustics that are as complicated as a Gothic cathedral, where a single sound can reverberate for up to a minute. It's a combination of accidents from an early industrial age of America that makes this sound. Bruce Odlin was touring Western Colorado with a group of artists in the 70s. His art was a little unusual, traveling the state with tape recorders to collect sounds. And a muddy four-wheeler pulls up with two roughnecks in it, and they say, hey, are you that guy? And what am I going to say? I got microphones all over me. I'm obviously that guy. So get in. We got something to show you. When they took him to the tank, it was love at first sound. The tank started its life storing water for steam engines roaring across the west. When steam died, the tank was moved to Rangeley, a one-stoplight western Colorado town of a couple thousand, where it was mistakenly placed on a bed of gravel. Its weight warped the steel floor upwards, making it unsafe for storing pretty much anything. And how does that affect the sound, do you think? Well, I think um, if it were flat, you'd hear the sound flutter like wop, 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 wop. And because it hits the bottom and it hits this curve, it disperses in all directions, right? And uh, so it just gives this nice Its fame grew among artists across the country, but people in this town of ranchers and hard-scrabble oil workers were dubious. They found it pretty hard to see any reason to support saving a seemingly derelict tower of steel whose value seemed to be mostly for scrap. How did you get these two cultures together to agree? It's been a gradual process, you know? I mean, at first we were just like extraterrestrials who had to be watched. Right. A skeptical Elaine Urey, then on the city council, agreed to visit the tank and give it a chance. When somebody first talked about the quality of the tank, didn't you think they were just a little bit crazy? Oh, yeah. But hearing was believing. like the sound goes into your soul and it does something to you. <laughs> what does it do to you? Uh, it's like a joy-filled peace. Other townspeople are now supporters and helped in the internet crowdfunding that has raised $150,000 to buy and maintain the tank, hoping to make it a center for artists and musicians from around the world. Amazing grace. Elaine comes from just across town, 
And to understand why she believed this old tank needed saving, we asked her to sing from deep within her religious faith. My daddy is in Iraq. A Christmas wish. Could you bring him home, home for, for Christmas? Christmas? That would be the best gift of all. There are Christmas wishes, and then there are Christmas wishes, as Steve Hartman now reminds us. <laughs> Whenever I think of the true meaning of Christmas, I'm always reminded of what happened in this second grade classroom outside Raleigh, North Carolina. Go ahead and open it. It was 2011, and the guy in the Santa suit had just given every one of these kids the exact toy they asked for in their letters. <laughs> every kid, that is, but Bethany Arnold, who refused to ask him for a single toy. Dear Santa, my daddy is in Iraq. Could you bring him home, home for, for Christmas? Christmas? That would be the best gift of all. Did you know you were asking for something that was kind of tough? Mm, yes, but, well, it's tough to go around the world in one night. That's true. And I've never wanted anything more than that. Bethany's dad, Wendell Arnold, was a contractor in Iraq, repairing the country's electrical infrastructure. I understand that he has to stay and help people, but I do miss him a lot. Last time they saw each other, they exchanged these keychains. This is his heart. She carried his while he held on to hers. I told her, I said, the next time that I see you, I'll, I'll give your heart back. <laughs> Unfortunately, bringing two hearts together at Christmas isn't always a government priority which is why this year Bethany decided to appeal to a higher authority, Santa. She even asked him again at school. Santa, for Christmas, I want my dad to come home. And that's when her wish began coming true. That's when she got her heart back. And that's when I got my reminder of what this weekend is all about. Daddy! <laughs> There's not a toy in the workshop that ever got this kind of reaction. You sure you don't want something else? Just so happy that you're home. Not a bow big enough to wrap the joy. Since this story first aired, Wendell is now back home for good. He says he missed his family too much to stay away another minute. Proving the only thing better than a dramatic homecoming is a family you know will always be there. Still to come, mysteries of the Dalai Lama. Ultimate source of happy life, inside, not outside. 
Even the name sounds exotic, the Dalai Lama. So what's the renowned spiritual leader of the Buddhists of Tibet really like? We ask Seth Doan to find out. The 14th Dalai Lama. He's the world's most celebrated monk, a Nobel Peace Prize winner and the spiritual leader of six million Tibetan Buddhists. A man with a message of compassion and nonviolence so meaningful and so cool, he's been featured in an Apple ad. So though we'd arranged to meet him, it still seemed a bit otherworldly to see the Dalai Lama, Your Holiness, I'm Seth Doan, emerge from a hotel elevator. Thank you very much. It's nice to meet you. He's known to cast off formality and did. The 81-year-old immediately accepted a little support. We met in Poland, where his busy schedule would allow, to discuss the Book of Joy. It's based on a series of conversations he had with an equally celebrated friend. I saw this picture. It's great. <laughs> you look like you're going to kiss him. I told you once, <laughs> behave like a holy man. <laughs> His co-author is South Africa's retired Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu, a pillar of his nation's struggle against apartheid. The book they wrote with editor Douglas Abrams explores a topic appropriate to the season, how to live a more joyous life. It's one of a hundred or so, yes, a hundred books the Dalai Lama has authored or lent his name to. Why did you want to do a book about joy? The subject is very good. If, if some book about sort of anger, about war, I don't want. But joy, you know something about. Joy, yes. Oh, happy. Not only just on the physical level, but mentally. Peace. Compassion. That's the real joy. Everyone have a right to achieve happy life. The Dalai Lama brings to the topic the perspective and purity of, well, a monk. You don't drink, you don't smoke, you've taken a vow of celibacy. Yes. Is there a lesson for the rest of us in that? No, I don't think every human being cannot be monk. And if human being becomes celibate, then uh, humanity will cease. <laughs> so better to have you see, more reproduction. So you don't want everyone to be celibate. <laughs> His message is simple. Most people look for joy in the wrong places. Everybody seeks happiness, joyfulness. But from outside, from money, from power, from big car, from big house, ultimate source of happy life, even physical health, inside, not outside. It's an inner peace, which he taught himself to find. Anger. I think almost gone. You don't get angry? No. Really? Really. Something must annoy you. A little bit, yeah. Very temporary, short, some kind of reaction. Otherwise, no ill feeling. Wow. Through training, 50, 60 years, analytical meditation. You get up at 3 o'clock in the morning yes. to start meditating. That's right. And you'll meditate for four or five hours? That's right. You'll do it in a temple or in a hotel room? Oh. In, in car. Now today, I think about one hour drive. So in car, uh, occasionally you see seeing, looking here and there. In big field, I saw some deers. Very nice. The deer? Very nice. What did you like about it? Peaceful. Vegetarian, peaceful. 
Very nice. He's a man who seeks peace, but for most of his life has known conflict with adversary China, which bars him from returning to his native Tibet. At just two years old, he was identified as the reincarnation of the recently deceased Dalai Lama, the name for the highest religious figure in Tibetan Buddhism. At age four, he was brought to Tibet's capital city, Lhasa. You are here to love all living things. Just love them. It's a story ripe for Hollywood, and it's been dramatized by no less than director Martin Scorsese in Kundun. What can I do? I'm only a boy. He was just 15 years old when he became Tibet's sole political and spiritual leader. That was in 1950, the same year officially atheist communist China occupied Tibet. The Dalai Lama tried in vain to negotiate self-rule for his people. In 1959, the Dalai Lama fled to India following the Tibetan revolt against the Chinese. He formed a government in exile. We decided we are not seeking independence. We are not seeking separation. We are very much willing to remain within the people's world of China. To this day, China views the Dalai Lama as an enemy of the state and seeks to block him from traveling to certain countries or meeting heads of state. The Dalai Lama told us it doesn't bother him. You must get a little agitated when a foreign leader won't meet with you because of China. No. My main purpose is, you see, promotion of human value, or promotion of religious harmony. He finds harmony through humor. He's not listening. <laughs> Unless you use the stick, yes. I will not listen. <laughs> but I thought you were non-violent. For the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, joy and laughter go hand in hand. Their playful teasing runs throughout the hours of conversations from their work on the book. How important is humor for you? Oh, important. Whether God creates or by nature, we have the ability to smile. But I think a genuine smile really is to bring closeness. A smile can bring people together. Yes. As the Dalai Lama sees it, something as simple as a smile can change the world. And in a world marred by violence and rising nationalism, he says we must try to find commonality. Too much sort of nationalism, we, 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 and then the problem, including violence, war. You think to solve the world's problems, we need to think beyond that which divides us, beyond religion, beyond national boundaries. Yes, I feel. And that from a spiritual leader. After the interview, we asked for a picture with the crew. He asked us to join hands and said finding solidarity, peace, and joy starts with engaging those right beside us. Next, it's In the Stars. Plenty of us know what it's like to spend the day at a park, but spending the night at a park requires the likes of Connor Knighton, who as always is on the trail. Great Basin National Park isn't really on the way to anywhere. Head to this remote stretch of the Nevada desert and you could easily spend an entire day wandering the pines by yourself. But if you go home when the sun goes down, you'll have missed one of Great Basin's greatest attractions. 
as they're fond of saying, half of this park is after dark. This is what Great Basin looks like at night. The stars shine so brightly here because this place is so unbelievably dark. We're pretty rare. Um, this is one of, if not the darkest place in the lower 48. Annie Gilliland is part of a special team of stargazers at Great Basin. We are the Dark Rangers, yes, which I do love telling people I'm a Dark Ranger here. <laughs> the Dark Rangers lead nighttime programs, setting up telescopes, and showing off distant galaxies to people who may be seeing them for the very first time. What's it like seeing something like this? It makes me think our world is so small and the galaxy out there is so big our minds can't even imagine it. Great Basin is less than 300 miles away from the Las Vegas Strip, the brightest spot on Earth when viewed from space. Protecting the skies out here has become a priority for the park. Having a dark night, very different from the daylight, matters to all the wildlife here, uh, the plants and trees as well, and human health. This year, after redoing all of its lighting, the park was certified as one of just a handful of international dark sky parks and has been promoting itself as one of the last places to see what's becoming an endangered natural resource. All aboard! During the summer, what's your name? Visitors can join a ranger on star trains, hopping into historic rail cars and heading out into the desert to see what the night sky would have looked like across most of America a hundred years ago. Today, over two-thirds of Americans can't see the Milky Way from their backyards. Alexis Wood came all the way out from St. Louis to take a look. Light could, you know, just reach us from millions and millions of years away. That's been traveling forever, and it's just suddenly getting to meet this one individual person on this, you know, planet, backwater of the galaxy, and yeah, it's just kind of amazing. It's hard not to have that reaction when you look up to the heavens. As a wise man, or two or three, once said, they're stars of wonder, stars of night. Ahead, look who Santa brought. I'll be home for Christmas. It's a Sunday morning tradition, and it's particularly appropriate when Sunday is Christmas Day. A beloved song from our beloved anchor emeritus, Charles Osgood. Welcome home, Charlie, and Merry Christmas. Thank you. Same to you, Jane. Mm -hmm. And it is, for me, being here is like coming home for Christmas. I'll be home for Christmas. You can plan on me. Please have snow and mistletoe and presents on the tree. Christmas Eve will find me where the love light beams. I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams. If only in my dreams. Mm. 
Merry Christmas, everybody. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning.